15 minutes could save you 15% or more. My dad used to say that. Sure, yeah. It's from Geico. Yeah, whenever I would ask my dad for life advice, he'd sit me down and say, Son, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. And look at me now, a well-adjusted adult with a drawer full of plastic bags I'll never use. (laughs) Okay, I'm confused. Was your dad a licensed Geico agent? Nah, he was just a real good dad. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Gritty, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome back to Say It Ain't Contagious, the podcast that looks at the intersection between baseball, politics, and social justice. I'm Frank Gritty here today, uh, here with my partners in crime, Lincoln Mitchell, Adrian Burgos, Steve Goldman, and Tover Wang. Craig Calcaterra, our other member of our crew, is not with us today. He's on assignment. But we're extremely happy to be here today to talk about a significant development in baseball history, a significant development in Mexican-American history and Mexican history. And that's something that took place 40 years ago, at least began taking place approximately 40 years ago. I think you could start the story in different moments. And that's really the, the, the story of Fernando Valenzuela, the talented all-star pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers during the 1980s, who uh, had an enormous impact uh, uh, not just on the game of baseball, but on the Dodger franchise, on Los Angeles history, and on Mexican-American, Mexican-Latino history. On April 9th, 1981, Fernando, who was then a 20-year-old left-hander from Sonora, Mexico, took the mound as the unexpected opening day starter for the Los Angeles Dodgers, who faced the Houston Astros that day. They were then the defending division champions. Uh, he subbed for Jerry Royce because Jerry Royce, who was their kind of their ace at that time, uh, had gotten injured. And so here's the 20-year-old who had pitched uh, you know, pretty well in small relief appearances the previous year to take on the task of being the opening day starter for the Los Angeles Dodgers, right? Then a, a perennial, you know, pennant contending uh, team, right? All Valenzuela did was pitch a complete game, two-hit shutout versus the Astros. And it was the first of eight straight shutouts for the 20-year-old left-hander from Sonora, Mexico. Eight straight victories, I should say. Five of them shutouts. At the time of that eighth victory, his ERA was 0.50, all right? So he was a dominant starter. He went on to lead the Dodgers to a memorable uh, World Series championship in which they defeated the uh, New York Yankees in the 81 World Series four games to two, dramatic victories, comeback victories throughout that postseason. But the stats and the results on the field really just tell part of the story about Valenzuela. Valenzuela wound up having an enormous social and cultural impact And that's what we want to talk about today. Uh, There's been a lot of reflection on Fernando 40 years later. The Los Angeles Times is doing an interesting series on them. But we felt, given the interest of us here on this podcast, that this would be a wonderful way to talk about extraordinarily important figure in Dodgers history and baseball history and social and cultural American history, I would say. In order to put Valenzuela into a proper historical context, a cultural context, we thought we'd call upon uh, one of the preeminent scholars of sport in Mexican and Mexican-American studies today, and that's Jose Alamillo. Let me introduce him briefly. You can find him easily online. Professor Alamillo is a professor of Chicano studies at California State University, Channel Islands. His first book, Making Lemonade Out of Lemons, a Mexican-American Labor and Leisure in a California Town, 1900 to 1960. And he's the author of uh, the first textbook on Latinos in sport, Latinos in U.S. Sport, A History of Isolation, Cultural Identity and Acceptance. 
And of course, he just recently published last year in 2020, the excellent, well-researched, outstanding book uh, entitled Deportes, The Making of a Sporting Mexican Diaspora. Welcome, Jose, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. We're really happy to have you here. And, you know, we really wanted to talk to you uh, about the significance of Fernando Valenzuela, given your research on Mexican and Mexican-American um, sport history. What makes your work distinctive, I think, is that you talk about sport on both sides of the border, right? Uh, as someone who has a real expertise of sport in Mexico, but also among Mexican-Americans in the United States and Latinos in general, I would say, right? So I thought we could start with a, a question about, you know, why you think Fernando's significant, right? You begin the book, you begin the report this by talking about Fernando's impact on you personally. So why don't we start there? Can you reiterate that story for those who haven't read the book yet and tell us why you decided to begin your book with the story of Fernando? Yeah, you know, I began that story uh, about Fernando because growing up, you know, um, I was an immigrant kid. Um, at the time that he debuted, I was uh, exactly 12 years old. and I remember exactly that game where most of my family, you know, we watched Dodgers all the time and it was just, you know, a, a kind of a routine thing. But, you know, we didn't make anything of it, uh, you know, on his debut. But then as he kept winning and winning, we're like, what's going on? <laughs> we, you know, we, we we were like, who is he? What, what is he about? And so, um, you know, um, by, night, by 82, um, everybody was coming over my house. And so it became this sort of, family reunion to watch uh, Fernando pitch. So for me, growing up at the ages of 12, 13, 14-year-old, we were just fascinated every time he pitched. And so it was a family, you know, reunion for us to, to watch him, you know, pitch. And that was sort of my first time that I, that I remember looking up to a kind of a hero, a kind of a you know, because, you know, I didn't really have a lot of heroes growing up. <laughs> I didn't even know who Cesar Chavez was. I, I talk about the significance of sports heroes because, you know, as a young teenager, you know, that's that's what matters, right? I, you know, I'm never going to hear, I'm not hearing about Cesar Chavez. I'm not hearing about Martin Luther King even then, right? Like, it's really, you know, Fernando is what matters. And, and right after the game, we would go in and play baseball <laughs> on the street or in the park. That was our thing. That was our, our our regular routine. And so I start the book that way because I think about sports heroes as being sort of these catalysts, right, that brings people together and it sparks something in not only in a family, but the community where there's sort of this yearning and search for role models that we can look up to. And to me, that's what he was, a kind of a role model that I looked up to and, and continue to do so because... You know, it wasn't it wasn't just happening here locally in, in Southern California, but my relatives in Mexico were were like just as fascinated with with Fernando. And to me, Fernando Bain is not just a phenomenon that happened here in the U.S., but it's a phenomenon that was happening in Mexico. And I think that's what's missing. I think when you watch Fernando Nation or the recent anniversary 40th anniversary that's happening with the LA Times I think it's great I think this is this this anniversary is is important to recognize the significance of Fandomania but I think it's also to bring in sort of the international or transnational component of Fernandomania because you know my relatives who live in the state of Zacatecas baseball is like the king's sport right so it's it's really the main sport 
soccer is not a big deal because we're not from Jalisco. We're not watching the Chivas games. We're not we're not from Mexico City. We're not watching those. But we're watching just baseball. And so my all my relatives were huge Fernando fans. And so I think that there's something going on, right? When we think about like how it's how this phenomenon has reached my relatives in Mexico. So they're coming over to visit and we're going over there to visit and we're watching games together. <laughs> you know? So it's not just uniting like the Mexican immigrant and, and longstanding Mexican American community, but it's uniting Mexico citizens with, you know, Mexican Americans in the US or, or Mexican immigrants, right? So it's, it's, it has a much larger transnational phenomenon that I think is important to mention. Yeah, before I turn it over to my colleagues, I mean, this leads me directly to my second question. We have a question about why Fernando, right? Why, what is it about that moment and what is it about him as a performer, as a pitcher? I think I'd love for us to discuss. But, you know, what you're articulating here in terms of his impact, you know, on, on Mexicans is this idea that you have that you posit in the book of sporting Mexican diaspora. I was wondering if you could talk about what that is and, and why do you think it, it's important for us to understand what this diaspora was historically and really what it remains to this day? Yeah. No, I think I think when you look at it historically, it has a lot to do with how these two countries, Mexico and the U.S., are intertwined in the development of sports. What I try to do is say you cannot have the, the rise of sports in Mexico happening without understanding the rise of sports in the U.S. that's happening in Mexican-American communities. Because what's happening in Mexican-American communities in the U.S. at this time, right, is important what's happening in Mexico. So, for example, you have, like, you know, the Mexican city president at that time, President Portillo, right, inviting Fernando, and then he's getting the keys to Mexico City, right? <laughs> but you also have border communities like Tijuana, Mexicali. They're coming into uh, Dodger stadiums. Like, they're literally taking buses from the border communities to watch Fernando Pitch, right? And so you have that phenomenon, right? Which is like long-standing phenomena. When you think about like how the proximity of Mexico to the U.S. is so important that we're literally next door, right? And so you're going to have sports, especially baseball, developing in both countries simultaneously. So you can go back to the 20s and say, look, the rise of the Mexican League, right, at that time was in tandem with the popularity of Mexican-American baseball leagues happening in Southern California, because literally they would go back and forth to play, you know, semi-pro, all those, it was back and forth movement, barnstorming games. So when we think about the diaspora, we have to think about the development of leagues, teams as an industry, right? Where you have back and forth movement going back and forth, playing and also not just players, but promoters, right? We have promoters, we have journalists. A lot of the journalists covering baseball were writing for not just the, you know, Spanish language newspapers in the U.S., like La Opinión, but also El Universal, El Universal, Excelsior, Mexico City. You know, so you see this sort of writing about baseball back and forth with the journalists, promoters, and the ballparks, right? I mean, you think about, you know, where they would play in the ballparks in that time. You also see the importance of like Delta Park in Mexico City and many other stadiums where they would bring in players and teams from the U.S. So there's been this circular transnational movement of baseball back and forth that we need to really understand historically and contemporary, right? And so this diaspora, yeah, continues. I mean, I think we can think of, we can talk about like, you know, like Julio Urias, right? Urias being the more recent 
player in the Dodgers and sort of falling in that tradition of Fernando, right? And he even looks up to Fernando, right? As sort of his role model. So he's the most recent example, right, of another um, Mexican pitcher who's recruited from Mexico and now joining the Dodgers organization. So that that diaspora is longstanding and it's, it's yeah, it continues. Thanks for that, Jose. And it, it reminds me of the contribution you made to the recent book, Play Ball, on the uh, Smithsonian exhibition. And in particular, thinking about the story of the Salazar brothers and the, the family. And again, you have kind of this family story and this legacy that goes across the borders and it's multi-generational. Can you tell us a little bit more about their story? Yeah, you're talking about like, you know, David Zalazar, right? And his brothers. And then you have Ernie Zalazar. And then you have Al Orozco, right? <laughs> Who's his brother-in-law, right? So you have these like Orozco, Salazar families. These were semi-pro players in the 20s and 30s. And these are like top players, but they never get the opportunity to play professionally, right? In part because, you know, they had to face a lot of barriers, a lot of economic barriers, but also racial barriers. And then, you know, what's fascinating about his story is that of the Salazar family is that they were playing in Mexico City, you know, in the 30s and in the 40s, back and forth, you know, and his, David Salazar's kids continue that legacy, like the daughters even playing softball, right? And so it's David Salazar's grandson, Daryl Evans, becomes a professional baseball player. But you would know that he was a Salazar because, you know, his daughter, they were Rosie Rivers, right? They, they married Euro-Americans. They, they met through their work in the defense industry in LA. And so Daryl Evans becomes a byproduct of the Zalazar brothers that makes it professionally. And he even honestly talks about how important it was to see and to know about his grandfather who played semi-pro but never reached the, the big leagues. And he talks about how his mother would pitch with him and would show him <laughs> how to pitch and how to throw a ball and then he would catch. And so I just think it's fascinating that it was the aunts, the uncles, the grandfather, right? they all pitched in to help Daryl Evans make it to the Atlanta Braves and continue to a very, a very good, solid career, I would say, you know? And so I think that's the legacy that we don't really hear about today. That's one of Lincoln's favorite players, Daryl Evans. He played for the Giants. Daryl Evans is one of my favorite players. He's probably the most underrated yeah. player in the history of the game. Right. And certainly the best player to have ever claimed to have seen a UFO. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about Fernando, because I remember at the end of 1980, when he got called up by the Dodgers and then pitched, I think, 17 and two-thirds scoreless innings over the regular, or the first 162 games. And then Tommy Lasorda did not start him against the Astros in the one-game playoff. Dave Goltz did. And Fernando came in late in the game and threw two shutout innings. But but so I was I, I remember him being a huge presence in California baseball. I was of course rooting for for the Giants uh, in in that situation. But what strikes me about this are two things. One, as much as I hate to say this, it's hard to separate the Fernando story from the Dodgers. I, you know, the impact would be very different. He'd, be, he'd play for the Brewers or the Twins or, or a team like that. So that's hugely important. But then the other thing that strikes me is that it was a moment in the culture where the culture could look at a rookie pitcher who was just pitching great and who had a great backstory. And it was much bigger than anything that, that you could imagine today. I mean, Shohei Otani is not a rookie, but uh, Hideo Nomo, you know, Nomo mania in the mid 1990s. But that was really 
in the in Korea and in the Korean American community here. So there's this moment where baseball players can still have massive cultural footprints. And and maybe Fernando was was one of the very last to have that. Be interested in your thoughts on those points is kind of part of Fernando's story. Yeah, I, I think that moment, you know, was really about this yearning for uh, you know, a, a Mexican baseball player in LA. I think you have to look at LA at that time that it was increasingly a Mexican city in the sense that it was growing demographically. They had tried before, you know, to find a kind of a Mexican baseball player, you know, the Mexican Sandy Koufax search, <laughs> as they called it, and they weren't getting anybody, right? They had a Native American who pretended to be Mexican-American. They had Bobby Castillo was there, but he certainly wasn't reaching that potential. So you definitely had this yearning, right? And O'Malley was definitely always constantly looking for that Mexican Sandy Koufax, right? And you also had, you know, by the 80s, this kind of like demographic turn, but also an immigration issue coming up because, you know, 80s was was rampant immigration from Mexico. I remember, I mean, we were even, even my family, we had a lot of undocumented immigrants in our family. And we were certainly one of those as well. And we were not sure, you know, if we would remain in, in the U.S. So there was definitely a kind of search for a Mexican sports star. And I think that not only that, but the media was was searching for a way to bring fans back. Because remember that you had the Chavez Ravine issue where a lot of you know fans do not want to go back to Dodger Stadium. And so there definitely was this, you know, approach to create a kind of marketing publicity machine around Fernando. And they were ready, right? They were ready to go. In fact, you can even see, and it wasn't just even the English media, right, pushing Fernando, but the Spanish language media with Jaime Harin, La Opinión. In fact, La Opinión had these billboards, <laughs> you know, that were set up where they would actually have in Spanish, Cuando Fernando lanza más gente lea nuestra opinión. <laughs> Literally, that was a billboard, right? When Fernando is pitching, more people read La Opinión newspaper. That was the billboard of La Opinión newspaper. So there was also a kind of the rise of what I call like sort of a Hispanic, you know, marketing emerging in the 80s. And they, they saw Fernando as a way to then kind of push that and, and bring up, you know, the importance of the rising consumer power of Hispanics in the U.S. So that was the other component in the 80s that I think is important to mention. And that's why you have this sort of marketing publicity machine that emerges in the 80s to really, you know, make Fernando this sort of a huge star. And, and I think he even admits it that he wasn't very comfortable with being that star. I mean, it was really hard for him. So definitely that moment with immigration, the rise of Hispanic marketing, and demographic shift, of course, in LA were, were the significant reasons why that moment made a big difference. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. I wanted to ask you about that Chavez Ravine controversy. Yeah. Because roughly 20 years before the advent of Fernando, 
the construction of Dodger Stadium required the taking of a Mexican uh, immigrant community that was in that place. And this was deeply controversial. There have been whole books, uh, most recently Eric Nussbaum's book, Stealing Home, which came out last year, which was very well done about the the uh, way it became a political football and, and different uh, families that were trying to stay were demonized for having too much money and not being true immigrants and so on. So I was curious in the Mexican American community or Mexican immigrant community, was there a long hangover from this in terms of its impact on Dodgers fandom at the point that Fernando arrived? It certainly was. But I feel like we don't know the full story yet. Like, I feel like one of the things that's missing from the Chavez Ravine, like we, we know about, you know, the families that were displaced. We know about, but, but usually you got to remember that Chavez Ravine was three neighborhoods, right? It wasn't one monolithic community. What I mean by that is that I feel like that sometimes Chavez Ravine gets to sort of take on a lot of its own as a sort of like community that was displaced, that was a victim to you know, these greedy politicians who want to displace Mexicans, poor Mexicans, you know, and, I, and, and certainly there's that narrative out there, but I think it's more complicated. I think when you start collecting oral history interviews from the Chavez Ravine residents, and you really have to look to what Priscilla Leva is doing at LMU, where she's actually doing an extensive oral history project, you find that it's more complicated because you did have some families, right, who went along and took the money, right, and went elsewhere and we were located, but some that did resist it. And so it's a complicated history. And of course, you know, Fernando comes into that story, right, not knowing anything about it, right? I find it interesting that, that the Dodgers never told him about it. And it's curious to me, like, really? <laughs> Everybody else knows that this happened and he didn't know about it. I find that hard to believe. And I think that's probably the Dodgers franchise. Being very like, Mm-mm, we're not going to talk about it. But I mean, he must have known, <laughs> you know, if it wasn't the Dodgers telling him, he must have heard it from from Ray Lara or other members in the community because this was widely known, right? It's, it's happened in Chavez Ravine. So I think that that story has yet to be told. Like, really, what really happened? And were many members really upset? Yes, of course there were some. But I think there were others who were like, okay, I'm willing to give it up just because it's Fernando. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I'm willing to like let that go because of Fernando. Because the fact that I, you know, Fernando is such a good player, such a great pitcher, and, and it wasn't just because he was a good athlete, but it was what he represented, like the humbleness, the the fact that he was gordito, right? Like you know, a little, a little bit, you know. And I think that he also was very family oriented, and he needed his family there, right? I think that was really hard for him initially when his. Family was in was in Sonora, and you know he was all by himself, you know. And I think he was searching for that family support. The language barrier. You got to remember the language barrier is such an important factor as to why, in many ways, he was appropriated and was sort of I feel like taking advantage in some ways. And like really, they were putting words in his mouth that weren't there. I think that they took advantage of that. Some some folks. So I I think that 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 is often overlooked by right? the language barrier. He didn't know English yet. And Tommy just sort of, I think, was taking advantage of that. <laughs> and he would joke about it, too. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. I was going to bring it up in the context of Fernando Mania really transcending the Mexican community to, you know, all over the country. I was a big Yankee fan by that time, so whatever with the World Series. But 
I wonder if that helped to coalesce the Mexican-American community around an identity, around this figure, and also whether that transcended that community to provide an alternative identity for Mexicans among non-Mexicans. And I was thinking exactly that he didn't speak English. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the way in which baseball treats players who don't speak English and the disparities between some of the Asian players and some of the Latino players. And I am also remembering the, I don't know if it was the first press conference, but with Tommy Lasorda sort of thinking he was very funny by translating Fernando and and saying all sorts of things that he didn't say, which I thought was kind of weird. So just <laughs> reacting to to these questions of identity and language. Yeah, I I think that that's one of the things that I I feel like um, is often again overlooked is is the role of language translation tra- interpreters for these baseball players. You know, you got to remember that like you know for a long time baseball teams didn't invest right in having like translators in their team who would travel with them, right? And so that's a more recent phenomenon. But I can imagine if they did much earlier, things would have helped their adjustment, right? They wouldn't have felt much more isolated and lonely. And I think that, you know, that scene when when Manny Moda like invites Fernando to hang out with his family, and this is from the uh, Fernando Nation uh, documentary, is important because I think that not, it wasn't just about like, you know, the fact that he was alone in his hotel, but it was about like being around uh, another Spanish speaking family, you know, and being in Florida, like, come on, a lot of folks that speak Spanish there. And the fact that they weren't even like in places where there was a lot of large Mexican community. I think one of the reasons why he wanted to stay in San Antonio was because it was a Mexican American community nearby where he felt like he was connecting to, right? And there was a lot of support in San Antonio. You know, I think that's also the, the story that gets missed is that he had a good relationship with a lot of Texans, Tejanos. <laughs> I know I know Frank knows that, right? Yeah. Yeah, Deb, my wife, they they saw him pitch uh, you know, in 1980 in San Antonio. They knew about him before he showed up in at, at Dodger Stadium in 1981. That's right. And so I think language uh is important, right? For for Fernando. In fact, you know, I actually think that you know, he, you know, him the ability for him to speak Spanish and openly in Spanish is you you really actually get more of him. Like you learn more about his story than if you do in English. And I think sometimes, I mean, he learns, he knows how to speak English now, but I feel like he holds back a little bit. It has to do with the difference in language. When we invite him to a Latino baseball history project reunion, you know, we're like, speak in Spanish, don't speak in English, <laughs> because he would, he would, you know, he would open his remarks in English. I'm like, no, 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 talk, habla español, you know, because we all understand it. Mm-hmm. And when he does, like, mm-hmm. he really comes into his own, right? I feel like he can joke more. He's more down to earth, you know? So I feel like, it's important, right, to know Fernando in his native language. And I think it's really important because you really get to know him and his story much more. And it's much more richer than in like sort of the English translation or interpretation of, of the story. Yeah, this is a great point, Jose. And the thing too, and, and I really like Fernando Nation, the, the documentary um, by Cruz Angeles. I teach it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's really well shot. And some of the interviews they did with, you know, with Chicano journalists and even activists, uh, you know, talking about the history of Chicano movement in Los Angeles was excellent. But what I love about that story in 81 is that, you know, the Dodgers were just damn lucky. You know, like, I actually don't think they had a whole lot of foresight in marketing Mexican fans at all. My sense of it is that they, they had no idea what he unleashed. Yeah at Dodger Stadium, right? I mean, they knew about the Travis Ravine story. They tried to bury it, right? And the Dodgers never had a prominent Latino player, right? I mean, they had some, but, but you know, their prestige was uh, all over Jackie Robinson, yep. 
right? And their understanding of integration was our African-American players, right? right. And even I've seen fo- images of photographs of the groundbreaking of Chavez Ravine. It was very striking is that Junior Gilliam is there, mm-hmm. the black groundskeeper is there. Like the Dodgers tried out their black players at the groundbreaking. And to me, that wasn't by accident. The Dodgers, you know, really, they, they cloaked themselves in the Robinson legacy, you know, very skillfully. They're very much like the Yankees and the Cowboys where they have all of this PR capital that really allowed people to just overlook their histories of racism, you know, uh, even though they were much more progressive than other franchises. And so, you know, I, I'm convinced that, you know, that once they saw who was showing up at the ballpark at Chavez Ravine when, you know, Fernando won those first eight starts in 1981, and they saw the people say, as one of the fans says in the uh, Fernando Nation documentary, he says in Spanish, there's a great line, I say it all the time in my class, nosotros los latinos invadíamos el estadio. We, the Latinos, we invaded Dodgers Stadium. Very interesting word that he uses in that quote, right? And so to me, it's, he unleashes this, this kind of phenomenon that then the, the, the marketers sort of jump on. I, as you say, I mean, there's a marketing machine around Latinidad, but it's very embryonic in this period, the 1980s. So some of this is just luck. The Dodgers were just damn lucky that Mike Brito said sign him too. That's the other piece that Jason Turbo talks about, you know? And so that's what I love about the story, that it really wasn't orchestrated until after it sort of got started because he took them out and started winning some games. And the racial politics around the Dodgers by the late 70s and early 80s are strange, right? Into the 60s, -hmm. they legitimately were Mm -hmm. a groundbreaking team. Those in terms of African-American players only. Those those mid-60s teams, Maury Wills, Willie Davis, Tommy Davis, Johnny Roseboro, but by the late 70s, you know, they're a team that markets the white players above the the inferior white players. I mean, Reggie Smith's and yeah. Mm-hmm. Steve Garvey was never as good as Reggie Smith or Dusty Baker, right? But he was the face of the franchise. Too. As one of our future guests said, he was so popular that they named a junior high school after him, which came in handy after he fathered all those children out of wedlock. It had a weird racial feel to it. It did not feel like a racially progressive franchise at all in the early 1980s when Fernando came along. And I wonder, Tommy Lasorda was his manager, The and I referred to it earlier, but I meant it seriously. You know, I would root for a team I'd never heard of against the Dodgers, right? I mean, that's just the way I was raised. So I was rooting for the Astros in 1980 in that one-game playoff and hoping that Lasorda wouldn't start Fernando. And he didn't. And given what we know about, for example, uh, Lasorda's less than enlightened views about gay people around in the late 70s, but also what we've heard about his views about African-Americans. I wonder what the relationship there was and if Fernando's ever spoken about that specifically with regard to Lasorda. I know he's not with us anymore, but. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's definitely the racial policies are interesting, right? Even, even when we think about when they, they were going through negotiations, right? And how he was, Fernando, you know, made that statement about like, you know, I'm not a boy, I'm a man. And to me, that that statement said a lot about like how he was feeling like being treated by the Dodgers organization, you know, late by the 90s um, when he was let go, right, 91. And then that to me, like says a lot about like how he felt like he was being sort of undervalued, right, in the, in the Dodgers franchise. And also the whole fact that, you know, his visa becomes an issue, right, about revoking his visa. So the issue of immigration comes to the fore. I feel like that's the other part of Fernando Mania, right, that gets sort of often forgotten where, you know, he's being now treated like just another Mexican laborer <laughs> in a way. You know, he's one of the most sought after guest workers, right, that was made, a comment that was made in Fernando Nation too. That part I think is important to talk about, you know, that he was also a kind of just another laborer, right, that he was treated very much poorly and without any respect and a sense of like, you know, that he had dignity, right? And so I think that's important right, to mention as well. You know, one of the things to me that 
as we were just talking about, Fernando really is the first Latino star for the Dodgers. Like when you think about from 47 to 81, is you know no Latino ball player that Latino fans, Mexican American fans can kind of say, hey, we're Dodgers, we're proud of this. So that's part of the phenomena. And the other thing is like even looking to today, we have Fernando Tatis, we have like so many Latino stars, but Fernando Mania transformed major league ballparks. And you know, you talk about you going to the ballpark, and I and I think about the sounds, the gritos. It's not just, hey, it's like, like, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to, again, go and see Fernando pitch and how the ballpark, whether Dodger Stadium or other ones, were transformed? It felt like a fiesta, I swear to God. Like, it, it felt like it was a reunion of just family and friends. But, you know, it was the Spanish. The, the, the soundscape was Spanish to me. You know, because by 82, we were going in more regularly as a family and I would go with my uncles or, and, you know, it was sort of the sense of like, I would hear Spanish spoken. I would hear Jaime Harin was actually, to me, important because he, I think, also transformed the way in which we listen to ball games. I feel like Jaime Harin often also gets forgotten that he plays such an important role in uplifting Fernando mania right because it was happening in spanish language media and broadcasting he was broadcasting in mexico by the way jame harin voice was all over mexico but also in the stadium too was i remember that even like the the smell right was different like the food <laughs> because like even they, they weren't necessarily selling mexican food that time but i i remember people bringing in mexican food to the stadium like burritos i'm like huh? and like even my aunt would like pack burritos and he would, she would bring them, you know, with her to feed everybody, you know, because we prefer Mexican food, not just the Dodger dogs, because they get old and stay out. Wow. I mean, come on. So yeah, I mean, that, that was all happening in the ballpark in Dodger Stadium. And not only that, like where we sat too was important. Did you sit in the pavilions? That's right. Yeah, the pavilions. And so that was a huge party, you know, it was like, you know, all hell breaks loose when you had too much to drink but that's that's where the party was you know <laughs> yeah i mean that sounds like it was great I, I wish there was more of that kind of festive atmosphere in the stadiums now um when you have so much corporate owned seats and all that i think we've lost a lot of that and i was bemoaning on an earlier podcast about how i, I really missed the yankees red sox fan fights in the in the seats back when i was getting into baseball but anyway, I wanted to mention how much his personality came through despite not being able to speak English with people. I certainly remember his style of pitching where he would look up at the sky or, or look up at the, the heavens <laughs> before he pitched and that being, I think, really endearing to people. Um, it's just, you know, this little quirky thing. But I, I did at least for a minute want to take it to the legacy of Fernando and his legacy with respect to Mexican players in particular and Latino uh, players as well, and also fans. I actually don't know, and maybe Adrian knows the breakdown, or you know the breakdown of Mexican fans, but the percentage of Mexican players is very small. And my understanding is that some of the dynamic of how Mexico and Major League Baseball has gone about business and that they're they're trying to do some stuff to promote baseball some more in Mexico these days, but I, I'm wondering how that experience carried forward. Yeah, so I think the legacy of Fernando is important to talk about. You know, like to this day, right? Those Doyers, right? 
I mean, just even the shirts that are sold on st the stadium of those Doyers uh, is one legacy. Because, you know, I think that um, not only its impact on other players, like I mentioned Julio Rias and other Mexican players, you know, from other teams, but the legacy it has left on, on the Dodgers stadium among fans is crucial. Like today you go, you can buy the shirts of Fernando and you still see that everybody wearing his jersey 34 right so you know the, the presence of him now because he's a broadcaster right i think is also still continues right to be able to listen to his voice but also the ways in which you have latino fans celebrate his legacy right you have still to this day like reunions and it's still continues with my family right we go back to the pavilions dodger stadium or you know we, we sit together and, and we still wear those the t-shirts with Fernando. So we, we still remember him, right? The, through the products, the, the shirts, but also through the players, right? Who look up to him, right? So I think that that says a lot about his legacy today. And I think it still continues, right? When you think about other communities, right? That looked up to Fernando, like you mentioned, the Japanese American community, Korean American community, right? Those communities, you know, also really remember Fernando Mania. And, you know, they try to, kind of create their own following Russ with their players as well. I bring this up not facetiously, and I ask not just Jose, but everybody. When we say that the Dodgers never had a, a Latino star, does Sandy Amaros not count? I realize he was Cuban and he was in Brooklyn, but he did make one of the most famous catches in World Series history in 55, which led to their first title. So I, I feel like he should get some respect. But the main question I, I wanted to bring up is, what is it about Major League Baseball's attitude towards Mexican players in particular that has prevented there from being a real follow-up to Fernando? Because if you, you look at the, the players who have originated there or in the Mexican leagues, they, they come at like, I mean, it's not like there, there are none in the intervening years, but it seems like they only managed to find and promote a player of lasting value on roughly five-year cycles. So about four or five years after Fernando came along, Teddy Higuera was excellent for a few years. Then his his arm, unfortunately, he just didn't have the health to withstand the workload, but he was an amazing pitcher for a little while. And then a few years after him, Vinny Castilla. And I mean, you can also go backwards and you can say, well, Bobby Avila was the center of the 54 Cleveland team that won the World Series. He won the batting title. And when you look into this... And I, I wish I had this because they have wisely never digitized it. But Baseball America asked this question somewhere in the 1990s, and they had the most racist quotes from a scout who generalized and said, well, all Mexicans are, are heavy and they don't run well. And, and as soon as somebody says they all, you know that, that they are not sincere in what they're saying. And I mean, if you ask a follow up to that and you say, wait, but they, they play football. They play soccer, I mean, the, the football, and they can't do that either. Well, okay, all the good athletes go there. And as you were saying earlier, that's just not true either. So what is it about Major League Baseball that you can show them, whether an Avila or a Valenzuela or Higuera and on and on and on, but they, they haven't prioritized scouting that country? I, I think a lot has to do with the way that the Mexican athlete is, is viewed and portrayed in U.S. sports media. Um, they don't look at the Mexican athlete as sort of this potential of athletic talent, you know, and this is historically understood when you look back, I write about this a lot in my book that 
you know, that Mexican athletes have often been racially stereotyped as sort of this short, stocky players. They're not really fit to play professionally. They may come in, right, as potential minor league players or, but not cut it at the major leagues. And so I've always faulted U.S professional leagues, MLB, for not doing more to open up that pipeline. This also has to do with the, like that rivalry, right, that, that emerged with the Mexican League, right, with Jorge Pascal. I mean, when you think about the U.S.-Mexico War in the 1940s, you know, they almost kind of left a bitter taste in Major League Baseball, right? When they had that opportunity for Jorge Pascal to really challenge the monopoly of Major League Baseball, that was when really we had this moment where we can really uplift and showcase the potential of Mexican baseball players, right, to make it in the big leagues. But they undermined it. They threatened players if they defected to the Mexican league, right, and so on and so on, right? And so that has to do with the fact that the U.S.-Mexico relationship, right, is an uneven relationship, right, where U.S. power, right, gets to exert and show Mexican baseball, professional Mexican baseball, that we have the control of deciding who gets to be, you know, uh, recruited and who does not, right? And it's unfortunate that the Mexican baseball is often looked as a sort of as a stepchild, right? And it's often not valued in the same way that we see with like maybe Caribbean baseball players are. And, you know, you mentioned these players like Bobby Avila and there's been a long-standing players, but you don't have them come in in, in larger numbers, you know, and a lot has to do with the fact that, again, the, the Mexican government has a lot of control over the Mexican baseball professional leagues. If Mexican baseball league was organized and they had their own union to push back, I think that maybe we would see much more of uh, them maybe, you know, because they have to exert their power, that they're under the control and the arm of the Mexican government. Um, so there's that factor as well. And I know that AMLO is trying to do more, right? with trying to like, you know, increase the number of academies now in Mexico and try to cultivate, you know, more baseball talent that can go into major leagues. But I'm not so sure that that's going to play out in the, in the way that he thinks it will, because you still see this uneven relationship that's still in place between U.S. and Mexico. And as long as we have that asymmetrical relationship, I don't know. I don't know about the future of the pipeline <laughs> from the Mexican baseball to the Major League Baseball. Um, I think, to me, it's also about investing in local Mexican-American players, that, like in communities where there is talent, you know, making sure they go through the college recruiting system and then enter that way. And we have a lot of good players, like Nomar you know, Garcia Parra, right? Nomar Garcia Parra is just one example of many Mexican-Americans who Adrian Gonzalez is another one, right? who really kind of show that, look, we can, you know, nurture that talent also from in the U.S., not just in Mexico, because I feel like it's much more difficult, right? Increasingly more difficult with what's going on in Mexico right now to cultivate more professional Mexican players in the major league. I think we have the opportunity to do that more within like college players uh, who are Mexican-American than we do sometimes with like Mexican league, because it's just... I feel like that's sort of like a lost cause in some ways. You might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. 
We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain planner features. See T-Mobile.com. You know, what's interesting, as you were talking there, Jose, I just started thinking about the Alex Verdugo-Mookie Betts trade, where the uh, Dodgers trade a very much Mexican-American identified Mexico glove uh, ball player to get probably one of the best, well, the best center fielder, right fielder in uh, in L.A. at minimum. I don't care what you say about Mike Trout. He's got this many rings. (laughs) None. So, like, you know, uh, just thinking about that trade and, and how that affects the the Dodger Mexicano fandom, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, and I think that that's where you can see definitely more cultivating more of a Mexican fan base, right, by recruiting these players. And also the Arizona Diamondbacks, I think, are doing a good job of, of doing that, you know, and many other you know, other teams. That's why I think, again, I mean, I, I can't emphasize enough my read on Fernando and the Dodgers. The Dodgers have got really lucky. It, you know, it was just a really contingent situation, right? And, uh, you know, the Dodgers owe a lot to Fernando Valenzuela, right? Not just because he brought in this demographic to Dodgers Stadium, but because they don't win the 1981 World Series of the pennant without him. Because, uh, I mean, he, you know, he was a gordito and he was identifiable, like the guy around the way drinking his beers over here. Right. But he was, he was damn good, <laughs> right? And he was their best pitcher in the 1980s. He wins that, you know, incredible game three against the Yankees in the World Series in which he doesn't have his best stuff. He walks seven batters. He throws 149 pitches and he beats the Yankees in that critical game where they were down two games to none. Right. One of my favorite pitching performances, Steve Goldman is sick and tired of me talking about people pitching nine innings. Uh, but that's one of them. That, I mean, that was Fernando at his best, right, even when he didn't have his best stuff. And so, you know, in some ways he's a blip. You know, he's like this one moment, you know, even though there's been subsequent Mexican players. And there's a, you know, a huge, you know, Mexican, Mexican, American, Latinx fan base for the Dodgers. But, you know, I mean, without that happening, you know, maybe this doesn't happen the same way. You know, it's a counterfactual question. But, you know, I, you know, again, I think, uh, you know, not just because of his talent, but because of his personality, the way he, you know, he sort of, you know, he's able to manage that whole dynamic, which is very difficult if somebody didn't speak English. And he had to put up with all the jokes. You know, I, I've been watching old telecasts with him and Tommy Lasorda and stuff. And, like, he's got to deal with them, you know, kind of making fun of him. But, you know, it's interesting the way racism works with Spanish-speaking people. So it's really remarkable what he did. And the Dodgers owe enormous, uh, you know, really are indebted to him as much as anything else. You know, I think instead of this being the, a story of Dodger genius, it's really about how they just got lucky <laughs> in a lot of ways, I think. Frank, I wonder, and, and Jose, also listening to your description of, of Steve's to Steve's question, I'm struck by the contrast between players, not not you know white American players and Mexican players in the major leagues, but players from other Latino countries and or other Spanish speaking countries. And and one thing that strikes me about Frank talking about the Dodgers being lucky is that it's not obvious to me the Dodgers wanted this, right? Southern California in the 1980s was a very conservative place. Yeah. If you take out the people of color, it's not like it, it's become much more progressive now, not just because of demographic change. But I lived down there in the mid '80s. It was I, I. It was very, very different than the Bay Area. Totally. And while I might and you might think it's great that there were people out there eating burritos and speaking in Spanish and you know all of that, a lot of the Dodger fan base could not have liked that. And I wonder to the extent to which that's informing the Dodger decision 
So yes, obviously they got lucky. And obviously I'm with Adrian Antoba on this. Uh, that Dave Rigetti Fernando Valenzuela matchup in game three is not my happiest baseball memory. <laughs> but obviously they don't win in 81 without Fernando. And I mean, look, he was a fantastic pitcher, right? Yeah. There's no doubt about that. And they wanted that. But, you know, the Dodgers gained something by pushing away Mexican-American fans for all those years. That's right. In the 60s when their reputation was the kind of sexy Hollywood team, not the team where people are partying and eating burritos. Yep. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm always struck by, you know, how, like, to me, I think one of Fernando's strengths was his discipline. How he, like, he would not let anything unravel him. He would hold things together, like, in one of the games where he was going to be, like, taken out. And he's like, no, I can do this, right? He comes back, and because he holds it together. So, to me, you know, I I love it how Fernando, like, pushes back against sort of that stereotype of the hot-tempered Mexican uh, athlete that has historically been, you know, documented by many, many of the scholars, right, including Adrian, right, that, like, he holds it together, he's self-disciplined, he has this an, an incredible control, despite what's going on in the ballpark, he can just tune it out, and he can focus in and zero in and bring his screwball when he, when it's mostly needed, and so to me, that, that counters that, that Mexican stereotype of, like, you know, undisciplined Mexican athlete who doesn't really hold it together, go, you know, fiery and all that. I love that. the fact, And that to me shows how he, he was an incredible talent and he is to this day. And so the question is, when is he going to be voted in, right, to the Baseball Hall of Fame? Because <laughs> he's in the California Hall of Fame, you know. <laughs> but Jack Morris was more important to 1980s baseball than Fernando, right? Come on. <laughs> And they have not retired his number, right? The Dodgers. Is that correct? That's hard to believe. I should know that. Is that right? The Dodgers policy was that the ring of honor would be full of those who uh, are, were inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And so, yes, for that policy, Fernando has been left out, even though really when you think about the Dodgers over the last 40 years, who are, who's been more impactful to their history? and to their success than Fernando Valenzuela. I mean, you can take others who are alongside him, but were there others that went beyond him? Exactly. There's, there's actual movement to retire his number that's gaining strength. Um, you know, I think that's, I think part of why the 40th anniversary of the Fernando Mania is important. And I'm glad the LA Times is doing it because I think that is gaining more momentum, right? To get the Dodgers organization to finally retire his number. So I foresee that happening as we gain more momentum and, and he gets more recognition. Jack Morris was a purely political play by reactionary sports writers. Of course he was. Of course he was. No, seriously, it was the equivalent of putting up a, a statue to a Confederate general, just the, the baseball plaque version. And it was, you're going to take Jack Morris and like it. We don't care what you say about him by sports writers like Bill Madden and, and so forth. If only they had as much of a sense of, of the cultural impact of somebody like Fernando Valenzuela or cared as much, but they don't. Right. They did it to make a point, not to make a point about actual baseball on the field, though. Right. 
Whether or not that happens, it's irrelevant. You know, I mean, in some ways, what the Hall of Fame is, you know, who knows now in light of, you know, everything that's happened since the steroid era. But there's no question that in popular memory and certainly in Angelino memory, Fernando is certainly one of the most significant Dodgers ever, certainly certainly in recent decades. Absolutely. No doubt about it. And I think that the Dodgers have made a lot of money thanks to Fernando Valenzuela. And it is true. You know, you go to Dodger Stadium now and it's, it's a fairly diverse crowd. You know, I mean, there's also a fairly middle class, you know, demographic, too. It's not, you know, it's not a working class demographic goes to these games more often than not. But there's no question that Dodger Stadium looks a lot different than the stands and even the stadiums in New York because because of Fernando, you know, and because of that that legacy. Absolutely. No question about it in my mind. We have come to the end of another episode of Say It Ain't Contagious. I just want to quote the poet Marion Moore, who was not only a great American writer, but was very fascinated with baseball. She died in 1972, unfortunately, so she never did get to see Fernando Valenzuela, but she did write a poem memorializing the 55 World Series hometown piece for Mrs. Alston and Reese, anthologized in many a book of baseball literature in which she says, Millennium, yes, pandemonium, Roy Campanella leaps high, Dodgerdom crowned, had Johnny Padres on the mound, Buzzy Bavese and the press gave ground, the team slapped, mauled, and asked the Yankees match, how did you feel when Sandy Amoros made the catch? So I can only imagine what she would have done with Fernando Valenzuela. Should you find a moment to spare, please go to the podcast of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us at S-I-A-C-Pod. That's Syac Pod On Twitter, it is always a question as to whether I will get through that in the right order. And with that, I would like to thank Jose for joining us. And on behalf of Lincoln Mitchell, Frank Gritty, Adrian Burgos, Tova Wang, and the absent but well thought of Craig Calcaterra, we will see you next time on Say It Ain't Contagious. Don't ever accuse me of overlooking Raimondo Amoros again. <laughs> I know his place in Dodger history. I'm a Cuban historian, Steve. Don't do that. <laughs> it wasn't an accusation. It was a sincere question. <laughs>